Good morning. Welcome to a convocation that is devoted to politics, appropriate in this season. And this morning we're here not so much to provide answers as we are to, to start and to extend conversations. We have four panelists. We hope to have five before too long. And we do have five. We do have five. Um, we have five panelists this morning who will be uh, speaking, each for two minutes. Now, this is a place of grace, so we will let them go over a little bit, but hopefully not too much, because we would like to have time after their opening statements for an exchange and then for some questions. I came with a couple, and if time permits, uh, we would like to be able to have you ask questions as well of our panelists. Before we get started, a quick pitch for an event that's taking place tomorrow evening. The second presidential debate uh, will again be sponsoring a uh, debate watch gathering. This will be uh, Student Senate, uh, Public Relations Office, and the Comm Department are sponsoring that. Uh, there will be uh, bingo cards and uh, excellent prizes. Uh, the prizes this time will be given out before the debate starts at about 8.50. We will get underway at about 8.40. Uh, there will be a short program at which representatives from the two campaigns will talk about how you can get involved if you'd like to in the weeks remaining before the election. So, Tuesday night at 28, hope you can join us. And now I'd like to introduce the five speakers, uh, each of whom will speak for, did I mention two minutes, <laughs> I think? We're gonna start off with uh, Ross peterson Veach. Associate Dean. Rachel Lapp will follow. Rachel's Assistant Professor of Communication. And then Lisa Gadea Carreño, who is Director of the Good Library, followed by David Ostergren, who is Director of the Master's Program in Environmental Education at Mary Lee. And then Joe Lichty, Chair of the Department of Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies. Welcome to each of you. Uh, so that I won't go over too much on my two minutes, I actually have something I'd like to read to you about liberal arts education. I'm here on this panel uh, because in, uh, as the associate dean, I'm the director of general education. So I'm the director of the, of the experience that most students have uh, in common. And from my perspective, the liberal arts education is one of the most important foundations for civil discourse and civic engagement in this country, in our democracy. There's a basic assumption built into the liberal arts education, and that is that one perspective is never enough because truth is not something we grasp fully, but it's something we pursue, and you have to pursue that through disciplined study. When we mix in this assumption that all things are connected, which I think is an important perspective here at this Christian liberal arts education, place of Christian liberal arts education, the place of a, of a liberal arts education, our democracy becomes, for me, even more urgent to the political process. The issue is this. To make a reasoned judgment in an environment as complex as our society I believe you must understand the various ways in which things are connected and be able to imagine how changing something in one place will affect something over here. Without some understanding of these various ways in which things connect and some understanding of how to communicate how you see things connected 
civil discourse tends then to become polarized. And we're placed in a world of shouting matches and politics based on a set of positions rather than on a set of principles. So I believe, and I'll just close with this, that a liberal arts education is critical to the development and maintenance of both civic discourse and civil discourse, and that participation in the political process by people who are liberally educated is one of the most important applications of your education here at Goshen College. Well, as we talk about discourse, um, my area of interest is in media discourse. And one of the ways that democratic discourse happens in this country was recognized by our forefathers, our founding fathers of the country. Um, here we have a nice, uh, not quite a photo of them, a painting. So again, this is a representation of what our uh, founding fathers were um, discussing, what they looked like. Um, and here is a great example of the first time that we have a political interpretation right here. Uh, now, of course, this is in oil, and today we have uh, Tina Fey doing the Sarah Palin impressions, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if this was an important image for understanding the, um, the dignity of our forefathers, and feel free to keep moving those along, um, there's 40, which are probably longer than two minutes. Um, if they recognize the importance of media, of being able to disseminate their messages and the ideas of democracy with the printed word, then imagine how blown away they would be by the access to all kinds of information that we have today that we do need to be educated enough to make good judgments about. Now, obviously, if we see a cartoon on jibjab.com, we understand that it's probably a spoof of some type, that it might not give us any actual information to help us make any political decisions. But by the same token, those images are incredibly powerful in thinking about how we start to form our images of who someone is, what they stand for, uh, the stereotypes about them, and who their supporters are. Yeah, I was waiting for that one. In the 1950s, this is when the first, uh, the first televised debates came on and the first um, political candidates became, to, uh, became more aware of the fact that image, uh, if a picture meant a thousand words, then imagine what one image can mean uh, for persons who are just seeing their cable channels for the first time, uh, or for their television channels, excuse me. And all of a sudden, you started to see media affecting person's votes. Um, in academic studies and polls that have shown that while there was a pretty significant uh, increase in voter awareness of candidates um, from the 1950s to the 70s through media, what has exponentially changed is the idea that their, um, their, their votes are changed by what media says. And since the 1970s, uh, that increase has kind of gone steadily up and then plateaued. And then with the, the that the internet revolution um, that's gone steeply up again as people feel that they have more uh, resources to find information about candidates they want. My challenge to you is to think about what representation means, not just in terms of political representation, seeing as how no one candidate could represent any of us, perhaps, 100%, but to think about how candidates themselves are represented. Who chooses the kinds of images that you see uh, about all of our candidates? Who designs this? What is the intended effect? What are the values that are being discussed? And to continue to perhaps deconstruct, is one of my favorite words, uh, deconstruct some of these images that you see um, and what they convey to you and the kinds of impact that they have um, on your own votes, uh, on your own sensibilities, and your own ideas of what representation can be in a democracy.
Now we're going to get um, on academic. I think I'm the voice of the personal experience here today. Veen Deloria Jr., a Lakota historian, theologian, theologian, lawyer, and activist, was once asked what he thought would bring about a healing between indigenous peoples and the colonizing powers whose influence is still felt. Deloria responded by calling on native people to return to ceremony and oratory so that the outside may realize that indigenous peoples may misunderstand but do not misexperience. Now, I'm not American Indian. I am uh, a mix of some things, but this, this insight resonates with me. My mother is German, Germanic Swiss ethnic Mennonite. My father was born in Mexico and emigrated to the United States as a boy. Both of my parents' families struggled financially for the entirety of their childhoods, and that was passed on to the next generation. Being both bicultural and poor growing up, I was on the fringes, in the barrios, on the outside, looking into a system that seemed grossly unfair, but completely beyond my control. We may misunderstand, but we do not misexperience. This phrase has not yet another layer of meaning for me these days when political spin has spun completely out of control, when every irrefutable point supported by hard data can indeed be refuted with a counterpoint, also supported by hard data, sometimes indeed the very same hard data. Frankly, I've given up on trying to understand all of the positions of the candidates, let alone all of the contextualized, nuanced interpretations of those positions. I simply don't have the time nor the mental stamina for it. So I fall back on my experience. And this means, of course, that race or ethnicity does play a role in my decision-making. And because race can rarely be uncoupled from socioeconomic status, that becomes a factor as well. Which candidate is most likely to identify with those who have been ostracized because of their last name, the color of their skin, their cultural or racial background? Which candidate is most likely to know how it feels to fall behind on the rent, to have to decide between groceries and paying the electricity bill? Which candidate might know from his own experience or his work with others what it feels like when a person doesn't have a safety net? doesn't have options, when the American dream seems out of reach and you can't find any bootstraps with which to pull yourself up. Now, do I believe that such a person who understands all this will make everything right, will bring justice and equality to everyone? No, I don't. The system is much too complex. Anyone who makes it even as far as the Senate will have to make compromises, will have to sell out at one time or another in order to get some things done. It's unfortunate, but that's just the way it works in this imperfect human world. It makes me sad, it makes me weary of voting at all. But if I don't vote, I have no right to complain when things don't go the way, the direction that I would have chosen. And there's one more bit of personal experience that has brought this election home to me in a way I certainly would not have chosen. In July, my husband lost his job due to downsizing. His employer depends on local industry for business, local industry went down the tubes, and the employer went down the tubes. My husband has yet to get another job. Here we are, having finally made it into the middle class, only to be slipping back towards the lifestyle of our childhoods. I place this blame squarely on those who have running, been running our economic ship the last eight years. Now, before I end, I do need to mention one other factor that affects my outlook at this election, and that is gender. 
Those who know me well would probably say that I am a feminist with a capital F. And indeed, I would be overjoyed to see a woman in the White House if that woman was truly up to the job. You see, in matters of both gender and race, putting people into positions of power, when it seems clear that their abilities meet only the bare minimum qualifications, well, frankly, this does no good for the cause. In fact, it only reinforces the myth that women or people of color are not up to the job. As Texas politician Sissy Farenhold once said, with her tongue firmly planted in her cheek, we will have achieved equality the day mediocre women can take their place beside mediocre men. Well, you know what? That's not the kind of equality I want. I'll hold out for something better. That's okay. That's okay. Is it for her or me? All right, well, I'd like to place this a little bit into context, so because we're talking about how do we talk about these different issues on campus or with colleagues or with people with whom we disagree. And one way to think about this is, why don't I understand this person I'm talking to? Right? They're, they're going to vote one way, I vote another way. And it, politically, from a political perspective, one great way to do is to stand back for a second and say, okay, well, there are two ways to look at different issues. So let's take something easy like freedom. Okay, freedom. <laughs> freedom. All right, so what's freedom? Freedom, I have the freedom to use my money, my hard-earned money, to spend it the way I wish, to invest where I want it to, to support arts, the environment, church, however, or to build a business, to buy capital, create a business, and then that property is mine and should be protected, and my ownership of that property should be protected. That kind of ideology has, got, has been working for 400 years in this nation, 250 years as a country, 400 years as an invading force or settling force, depending on your perspective. And both of those, that, that idea, that idea of development has given us this building, the microphone, the computers many of you use, all this kind of technology, cheap energy, etc. Another way to look at it, freedom, is to look at the freedom from fear, the freedom from will I have health care, will I have a job, will I have education, will I have a safe road to drive on, okay? So that's a different kind of freedom to look at, and it's two, it's two can be complementary, we can try to put them together, but it's also two different ways to think about freedom. Why? It's the role of government. One type of freedom, the government is responsible to protect property that I have. The other kind of freedom is that there is a role for government in everyday lives. For instance, taxes. Now, I, I, I'm often a quiet, not a quiet voice, but a lone voice. I find myself arguing for higher taxes all the time. And what will those taxes do? Well, in my particular field or thought, they would support energy, uh, a prudent energy policy, okay? So what, what can taxes do, and why do I have this position that government has a role, is that taxes, for instance, on gasoline, five, six dollars a gallon, would prompt us into different behavior than the taxes currently on gasoline, all right? Uh, we can use that money to invest in the things that 
private enterprise will generally not invest in, public transportation, metros, things like that kind, alternative energy. So those that from a from a position from that position, my position of seeing a role for government, that leads me to vote one way or another in this particular race. Uh, McCain's policy will be market-based, still seeking to solve global warming, but much more market-based, no taxes, whereas uh, the Obama campaign has more, sees more of a role for tax, cap-and-spend government regulation. And I think that the market uh, if you've been watching the stock market lately, we might, there might be a critique there on market policies. I frequently hear comment about how bitter and divisive American politics is, and to a degree it's true, red state, blue state rhetoric can be pretty harsh. But the nasty language may be an example of what Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of small differences and serve to obscure just how minor are political differences in the U.S. compared to many other countries. On a scale of global political difference from 1 to 100, I'd say that U.S. Republicans and Democrats cover the range all the way from maybe 48 to 52. Um, okay, in a pinch, 47 to 53. But, but think about it. How many Green Party candidates are you going to vote for? National parties dedicated to racial purity, libertarians, communists, feuding varieties of socialists, religious fundamentalists. Will the monster-raving loony party be on any ballot you see? Now, it, it's true, Screaming Lord Such, founder and longtime leader of the aforementioned party, never did actually get elected to the British Parliament, but he got significant votes sometimes, famously in the 1990 Bootle by election. And perhaps more to the point. All the other political stances I mentioned, and many more, have major leadership roles in national governments around the world. U.S. politics, by comparison, is relentlessly centrist, and any leader who moves from the, from the center will either be cut off from the mainstream or be pulled back by the power of the center. I never voted in any political election until about 10 years ago, and that sense of minor political difference was one reason. What's the choice? I do vote now, and one major reason is that I now reject the narcissism of disdaining small differences. In other words, just because differences may, from some perspectives, be minor, doesn't mean they don't matter. I ask myself, will the comparatively minor differences between the policies of our presidential candidates make a difference in how the world works? I answer an emphatic yes, and I look forward to voting and thereby expressing my judgment about those small but significant differences. Thank you all for those thoughtful uh, opening reflections. And now I'd like to see whether you'd like to respond to each other in any way with a comment, with a question. And just be clear about who you're responding to and, and making your points. Try to keep them at a minute or under so we have a chance for everyone to participate. We're going to, we're going to do a, uh, a quick switch here, and we're going to open things up to all of you. This is the panelists' will. Uh, they would like to hear what questions or comments you have. So we don't have mics out there. I would ask you, 
if you would like to pose a question or make a comment, to stand up and speak in your outside voice. <laughs> yes, John. I uh, really appreciate the various perspectives offered here. I'm struck by the fact, though, that in a national election where religion is so prominently um, part of the conversation, <coughs> that none of the five of you explicitly addressed uh, how religion or personal religious convictions shape your, your decision on how to vote. And I wonder if some of you would like to speak to that. I'm, I'm going to just repeat the question to make sure uh, everyone heard that. John is, is asking uh, how religious convictions shape the, uh, the political views of, of the uh, five people here today, in part because he didn't hear that uh, come through in their opening statements. Well, I hesitate to discuss religion, sex, or politics because you can be attacked on all fronts, and, and uh, I'm anticipating some attacks on having spoken about politics already. But it seems to me that religion and its role in the national election, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a part of the, of the national discussion. Religion is intensely personal, and yes, people vote based on some of their religious convictions. But to say that either candidate has some sort of corner on the market in religion is, I think, a joke. Um, the last presidential election when, I think, during the debates, Kerry had to sort of come up and say, yes, he was religious. I thought, well, that's really stupid. I mean, everybody's, uh, both candidates have some religious principles. And, you know, if you go down all of the points of, of sort of where they fall in areas that match up with people's religious principles. Neither one of them match up with where I am personally, so I take, I sort of take the least common denominator, if you will. Okay, we've got that disagreement we were looking for now. Uh, I, my, <laughs> my voting will have everything to do with my religious outlook, not in a immediate connection in every sense, but in the sense that my vision for what constitutes the, the welfare of this country, of the world, is shaped, I hope, more than anything else by my religion. And so I will be asking the policies of these candidates, which correspond more closely to my vision of what is good for this nation and for the world, and that is the religious political link. I also, I, I might as well say, I'll be voting for Barack Obama for a number of reasons. But one is that I, I have, one of the things I really like about him is that I think Democrats have been almost completely brain dead on the connection between religion and politics for about 20 to 30 years. And Obama has the most sophisticated account of the relationship between personal faith and uh, politics that I've seen in a candidate, Democratic candidate for a long time. I really appreciate that about him. The others may wish to respond, but I think we're going to head to you for another question. Yes. The world watches our election like no other election in the world. So it really is not a national election or a national campaign that's going on. It's an international one that only U.S. citizens get to weigh in on. How does that affect your <coughs> sense of urgency to campaign or to uh, 
uh, influence the vote recognizing it's not an inter a national election, but really an international election? Well, if the, uh, if the protests of the Iraq invasion of Iraq were any indication, uh, the international community definitely watches what's going on, but you saw what millions of people could not do across the uh, country as far as changing U.S. policy. So again, it influences, I think, I think, I think the ability to listen, or you know, uh, the ability of a leader to listen to or and build those kinds of uh, connections across across cultures and across the world is probably uh, is probably what could be a criteria for how you would how one would vote. In other words, uh, um, seeing seeing a consensus builder or seeing somebody who has some perception that there are different cultures out there or uh, that might influence how you would vote. Probably both candidates have uh, uh, quite a bit of international experience, I would say, as far as both perception and practical interaction that way. How are they going to translate that or project that influence on the rest of the world prob probably would look different. I see the, uh, uh, one of the two politics editors for the record has a question. is how to decipher or distinguish between something that is uh, rhetoric, maybe uh, misleading, uh, propagandistic, and something that is factual and true in presenting uh, the candidates. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I think the education that we're dedicated to providing people here directs you to different places to make sure that in that pursuit of truth, you're not just listening to one perspective, that you're not just listening. Some perspectives have been espoused here, for example, that uh, any number of you may disagree with, and that's part of the process. That's part of the pursuit of truth. So um, I think the issue for me is what sources do we consider reliable, and how do they construct their own objectivity or their own authority? That's a key issue for us in the liberal arts process is to say, well, what does discourse really mean and where does authority really come from? Um, in some governments, authority just comes right out of the government. We say it's like this and so it's going to be like this and if you disagree with us, we're going to get rid of you. So um, in some other places, authority has to be constructed and I think that's one of the things that happens with stories and with the media is that it's a story and it's a story no matter where you go. So the issue is, how do, you, how do you decide, like you're saying, 
which one is an authoritative study and which one, or which one is an authoritative story and which one is not an authoritative story. And I think that happens with triangulation. How many other people agree with this, that it's true, or how many other people agree with that interpretation? I think we're generally kind of moving in education towards things that we could agree on, and we set those things aside and tend to then talk about things that we don't agree on as well uh, once we get to a certain place. Most of the things that we talk about here in classes are things that we generally agree on until we get to the upper levels where we tend to talk about things that are not settled in our disciplines and those questions that really drive our disciplines forward. Well, I think this goes back to um, some of the discussion here about representation, again, uh, and also about how we're applying our own values to what we're seeing and to what we're hearing and the kind of information that we seek and the kind of information that, that comes across our desks and um, or our laptops or, for that matter, our iPhones. Um, there's a tendency for all of us to seek out those sources with whom we agree. Um, to read the editorials or to watch the news shows uh, that we know are, are aligned with or close to our own values so that we can nod our heads and say, oh, yeah, yeah. Or we can hear a fact that's, um, that, that's brought up about, um, oh, I don't know, Sarah Palin and John McCain disagreeing about global warming and say, oh, yeah, that's a big problem. What's wrong with that, huh? Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be a problem in the White House. So it, we're, we're looking for those things that reaffirm our sense of what is right or wrong. And we very rarely look for those sources that bring out other perspectives um, in a way that we will read carefully and thoughtfully and say, oh, yeah, that person has a good point, you know. Uh, maybe there is more to global warming, um, that, and we really just don't need to seek out the, the reasons for global warming. We just need to try to solve the problem. You know, we're, we're not necessarily going to be looking for those types of opinions that don't quite agree with our worldview. And even though we, we try uh, to, to think about ourselves as persons who can um, intelligently process information and images that we see, we're going to most resonate with those images that already agree with how we view the world. I'd like to finish with one quick question. And then note that uh, those of you who are here are welcome to come and, and uh, Continue the conversation up here with the, with the panelists. And the question I would, I would like to pose to them, uh, and it may end up being a rhetorical question, but what do you think the atmosphere will be like? What do you think life will be like here on the Goshen College campus the day after the election? And what should it be like? Is there anyone who would like to comment on that, or do we leave it hanging in the air? I think it's very important to take a life will go on and we will have the same kinds of work to do we had the day before uh, perspective. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the U.S. system that you can neglect if you haven't experienced destructive alternatives is that the day after the, the election, the people who were elected out of office, office will leave it pretty peaceably. Those who enter it will enter pretty peaceably. The society will not fall apart. There will not be blood in the streets. And that stability of passing over power cannot be assumed, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Okay, we'll end on that. We'll end on that note. Thanks to the panelists. Thank you for being here, and we welcome you to stay. Thank you.